Welcome to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge, the fiercely nonpartisan discussion that seeks policy solutions to issues of the day. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. So welcome to The Common Bridge and welcome our audience to The Common Bridge. Uh, today, our topic is news reporting and why the news is distrusted today. And we welcome to The Common Bridge, Joe Barillo. Joe is an award-winning media executive. He's a producer, a journalist, a former executive vice president of programming for CBS television distribution, was a news executive for NBC, a writer producer for Dateline NBC, and he worked for ABC News. He's a regular contributor to publications, including a recent opinion piece in The Hill that we're going to spend some time with. Joe, welcome to The Common Bridge. Thank you, Riz. Thanks very much for having me. Honestly, appreciate it. Very much appreciate spending some time with us. Our audience likes to know a little bit about people that are coming on as guests. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you start on? Like, where'd you grow up and what were your oh, early days and academic? Okay. Like, like, All right. I'll, I'll give you the short version of that. Um, please. Uh, I grew up in the Bronx, New York in a working class uh, Irish Italian neighborhood. My dad was uh, owned a bread bakery with his brother, my uncle John. Uh, and I and I spent most of my youth uh, working at the bakery with him at four in the morning, delivering bread. But they were, my parents were very, very hardworking people who really cared about education. So they sent me to a good Jesuit high school in the Bronx and then to Columbia University. And uh, there I got a real love for journalism and became the editor of the, the Daily Paper at Columbia and into a, a journalism career from there. I started out in print. I worked at Rolling Stone Magazine. I worked at the Wire Services up in Albany, the, uh, the state capital of New York. Uh, worked for a Hearst newspaper there. And then around 82, I was in the business maybe all of three years out of college, 82, 83, a lot of newspapers began to close. And I thought, hmm, it might be good to get out of that and get into broadcasting. So I went over to ABC News and was there for three years then worked in local television news in New York, moved out here to LA, worked in local TV news here, then uh, then went from local to uh, NBC National News over to Dateline NBC, which back then was a more traditional news magazine. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's a, sort of a true crime show now, but then it was more like 60 minutes. Uh, so it was a great gig. I was able to travel all around the world and meet some really fascinating people who I would never otherwise get to meet. And then... Um, and then after that, I decided to sort of jump over to the entertainment side and was offered a job as an executive at CBS, as you mentioned, uh, in their syndicated programming. And that's sort of, uh, for lack of a better way, that's sort of blue collar TV. And I say that very proudly. So that's, that's stuff like Judge Judy, The Dr. Right, Phil right, Show, right, right, Rachel right. Ray, Entertainment Tonight, yep. uh, really just good, well-produced meat and potatoes, not the glamour side of the business, right. but good meat and potatoes television. Um, which I really enjoyed and really appreciated. And I was there for about 12 years and then took the opportunity to go uh, about a year or so ago. And, uh, and since then, uh, have been, has been writing this opinion column on media and politics uh, for The Hill, which is a Washington, D.C. Uh, news outlet. Well, you've got to be very, very busy with that. And yeah. um, I hope that people will read your material. We are going to put some links up on the website, richardhelpy.com. Thank you. And that's why we want to talk about news reporting today. And yeah, I think we're going to hear today that we've lost the actual news and, you know, why we did, where are we today, and maybe where can we go policy-wise. And, and I know our listeners are going to get some education today and perhaps some uh, policy ideas. 
So, Joe, that most recent piece that was entitled More Americans Than Ever Distrust the News, Here's Why and What to Do About It. In your column, you mentioned that 60 Minutes correspondence Leslie Stahl often quotes a conversation she had with Donald Trump in 2016. And she wanted to know why he hammered the news media so much and his answer so that eventually no one will believe you. And as you say in your column, four years later, mission accomplished. Trust in the news business is at an all-time low. So how big of a problem is this and is it getting worse? You know, it's, it's a huge it's a huge problem depending on where you're coming from, Richard. If you're coming from the place that you are, and I am, it's a huge problem. If you're an investor in big media, it's not been bad for you. And that's part of the problem. Distrust in the media was, was uh, growing even before Donald Trump came into, the off- into office. And I make it a point of that in my column. He just exacerbated it, I think, because a lot of people in the news media felt that they had to choose sides, that they couldn't the old rules of journalism didn't seem to work for this particular kind of president. For an example, all presidents, all politicians get up there and give you their spin mm-hmm. on the facts. Very yeah. frustrating. I always hated working in Washington, D.C. because you always <laughs> had to be alert for the spin and you had to deconstruct it for your reader. But that was the job. The president yeah. gets up and says to you, hey, the stock market's up 3% today. Doesn't tell you that unemployment is also up 3% today. Right, right, right. But that's, but that's okay. Right? Your job as a journalist is to say in your article, president says this, by the way, unemployment's also. And you can quote an economist saying which one is more important to the overall outlook of the economy. That's different than a president who gets up there and fabricates something as spin. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with someone who didn't say, who says Dow Jones is up 20% when it was down 12% or makes up a new Dow Jones that doesn't exist to tell you how great the economy, how do you deal with that? Well, you know, I've spent a little time on, on Wall Street, and believe me, the, every one of those investment banks can take every one of those numbers and make it sound great. And a large part of your career, I think, if memory serves me correct, you operated under the fairness doctrine. The Reagan administration decided not to keep enforcing that under the belief a free market could maybe better regulate the content that we're getting. Remember, some of our listeners are younger. They were not even born at a time when the Fairness Doctrine was in place. So talk a little bit about what it was, how it worked, and how things worked out since the Fairness Doctrine hasn't been enforced. Right. It was first enforced back in 1949. I don't think either of us were around then. Not me. But but the idea was uh, that television and radio stations licensed by the FCC in order to keep their licenses, had to make sure that they worked for the good of the community. In fact, it even says that an owner of a TV or radio station did not own it for his caprices and whims. That's in the regulation. Oh, really? Interesting. Yes. Rather, rather, he was there, he was given that license to serve the community. Mm-hmm. And so to serve the community, the FCC said, you had to be fair. You had to air public issues and give all sides of that issue a fair airing. Along with that, there was something called the equal time rule. That dealt not with issues, but with politics. So during a political race, an election year, you had to make sure both candidates had equal time on your air, right? You couldn't just have Rich on from one party and not have me on from the other. And they had to be equal. So both those things were in place since 1949. The Fairness Doctrine especially was why we had a lot of public access programs and public interest programs, usually on Sunday mornings, but we at least had them. And people had a place to go to hear uh, issues of local community concern. That doctrine and the way it was carried out over the years began to rankle a lot of people 
especially uh, right of center, who felt, look, the establishment media is already leaning left. So my voice is already not being heard in a way that I would like it to be heard. My issues are not treated with the depth I believe they should be treated with by the establishment media. This fairness rule, I think, protects them. I think it protects that status quo that I don't like. Then in comes Ronald Reagan, who also genuinely believed, look, let's make the marketplace as free as it can be. And so he got rid of the fairness doctrine in 1987. And very, very quickly, the conservative voices stepped into the void and filled the new atmosphere. Rush Limbaugh was the first big conservative talk radio star who began, I believe, in 1988. So right there, um, the conservatives had stepped in with political talk radio from one point of view. And we were off to the races. And things have never quite gotten the same because then you got into where we're on now, this sort of tit for tat. Well, you got all these people on the right, so I better have my people on the left. Mm -hmm. Let's all choose sides and only listen to the media that agrees with us, that confirms our biases. Um, And then further, I think in the Trump years, you got almost away from facts. In other words, we didn't have a shared set of facts to debate, left or right. It was other things. And and it became much more difficult to at least agree on a certain set of facts that we could discuss. Yeah, I think that's a very important distinction that saying we're going to cover both sides or all sides of an issue doesn't mean every crazy idea or theory or accusation out there needs to be dealt with with equal weight. I did find it fascinating that as talk radio came up and people were losing it over things like Rush Limbaugh would say, and I'd say, well, how come there's a market for that? And there's lots of attempts to market a competing product that really never were commercially viable. When I think about the Fairness Doctrine, we had an era of very few broadcast television networks and very regulated radio airwaves needing an FCC license. And yeah, you can say, all right, this is the area where people are going to get their information from. And we want to make it as fair and as complete as it can be. But here we are today now. We've got a vast array of information resources. We've got direct-to-the-scene reporters like Andy No and a lot of others. And I'm just wondering, can we put the genie back in the bottle? Would a fairness doctrine work in a world of online news, web pages, social media, 24-7 news coverage and the like? Is it possible to even head in that direction? I don't think it would work ultimately. The genie is out of the bottle, and I don't know how you put it back in with all the media we have today. In other words, we have right now the very opposite problem that we were confronted with in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. So back then, as you said, the FCC did what it did, and the Supreme Court backed it because there was a scarcity of media outlets, right? There was only so much bandwidth. Right, literally. Right. Without fairness doctrine, your point of view might get cut out and you would have no place to go because there were only so many outlets for you. Well, now you have so many, many, many more outlets. You still may not get heard because how do you get heard above the noise? How do you stand out in the din? The way you stand out, Rich, is not doing what you do, but screaming as loudly as you can and in, in full black and white. That's how you stand out. And that's the problem we have to. And also today that I think about control, the airwaves of 1970s, okay, with again, a few television stations, few radio outlets, or a world where literally a handful of companies, Google, Twitter, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, can effectively make someone a non-person and can say that's not acceptable thought. And I'm watching what used to be the news industry do things that I think are kind of conflicting. 
you say, hey, you know, why don't you trust us while doing a lot of distrustful things? Right. And I don't know how they can reconcile that. I mean, it, I don't remember if it was one of your pieces or something else I was reading about just the way they put the sets together. Everybody sets is blue because right. that's for trust and red for example. Was that something that you wrote? Yeah. Okay, I thought that that was yeah. something I'd read that yeah. from you. It all looks the same because those colors, just to, to bring your, your listeners and viewers into it, blue reads as trust to the eye. Mm, Red reads as important. So when you want to say, hey, this is important and trust us about it, you have a red and blue set, which is what they all have. But part of the problem, this goes back to the earliest part of our discussion, Rich, is what you see now, this cacophony is profitable to everyone involved, which mm-hmm. is why it's very hard to get away from it. People like you and me who want down the middle, give it to me straight news, look over here and there's Fox News, extraordinarily profitable. MSNBC, quite profitable as well. Facebook makes a ton of money. Now, they don't make a ton of money because you and I post our family pictures from Thanksgiving. Right. They make a ton of money because angry, politically involved people don't get off the thing. And That's Facebook right. algorithm keeps feeding them reasons to stay on. Twitter, they do the same thing. So everyone's making money on the outrage industry. And it's very hard to make money on the just the facts industry. People have been trying it and it hasn't been working out well. And, and that's one of our common messages on the common bridge is... Yes. You're not going to come here and get affirmation reporting. My brand promise is that everybody will find something to disagree with or dislike every single episode. And you can continue to consume that polarized reporting if you wish. Right. And as long as you do it, you're going to keep doing it. I've been trying to find analogies to break through a little bit. So we had Matt Taibbi, uh, yeah. was it? Excellent author, journalist, and, and guest. Uh, I'm reading his book right now, Hate Incorporated, which I recommend yep. to everybody. Yes, um, excellent book. And he talks about they've made it look like sport. And I just was reading Facebook streams from people of a certain political persuasion. And they said, if you can't tell what team to be on, you know, be on the team that doesn't have these villains. And they named uh, who they considered to be the, the villain. You know, I'm a big hockey fan or Detroit Red Wings fan. And I watched that phenomenon in sports because there were players like Darian Hatcher, who came from Dallas, and Chris Chelios came from the Blackhawks, hated when they were playing against the Red Wings. They came to the Red Wings. All of a sudden, they were Darian and Chris instead of that whatever. And in politics, look at this. John Bolton and Michael Cohen went right. from reprehensible beings not to be trusted, to all of a sudden heroes. Why? Because it kind of looked like they switched teams. How did we get into that? How do we get out of that? No, it's very difficult, again, because the profit motive is to stay in there on both sides. Extremism pays. Uh, and it's very difficult. People have tried, as I mentioned to you, and it hasn't been great. Shepard Smith, who was a, a straight news uh, reporter on Fox yes. for a long time, jumped ship back in 19 and wound up over at CNBC the business channel, recently got an hour of news at 7 p.m. Shepard Smith gets only 280,000 viewers, while the opinion shows on the other news channels get 2 million plus. Wow. Next Star, which is a great, a great station group, owns a, a cable outlet called WGN America. And they started an evening block called News Nation, straight news. They get in their key advertiser demographic, they get per night 15,000 viewers. We need to put a link to that up there. And I do see green shoots of people trying to do something. Yes. And I think that we need an overarching, not necessarily a corporation, but linking these together, yes. um, standards and such. And it would not be uh, regulatory. The job of journalists seems to 
be to push an agenda or to locate an audience versus doing the reporting. Just before we came on today, I was watching CNN literally salivate over a vote on the constitutionality of impeaching an ex-president. Mm-hmm. And they had, there was no inward look at, well, is this a good thing or not a good thing? And the argument that could you impeach any ex-president? I mean, could you impeach Jimmy Carter? He's still alive. And I go back to, and I'm not a constitutional scholar, so I'm not going to say, yeah, you should be able to or shouldn't be able to. But I remember 1974, Richard Nixon resigned rather than be impeached. Mm -hmm. And if he was going to be impeached anyway, what would he have drugged the country through? So I think it's a legitimate question, but there can't be any sober analysis on this. No. And I I think your story points to one of the key problems in the news business right now. And this is true of print as well as of television and radio. They blend together opinion and straight news to the Mm -hmm. point where the audience can't tell the difference. And the studies have been done on this. Uh, Audiences have a very difficult time separating opinion from news because they're not clearly labeled. It used to be that you would find opinions in clear sections of the newspaper, period. Right. Um, or if there was an editorial on your local television station, there was a big sign saying, this is an editorial. And those things are gone. And we use euphemisms like analysis, perspective, reporter's notebook, rather than saying to people, we're now bringing you opinion. One thing that all of these cable networks could do is at the top of every hour, even if it's an opinion show like Sean Hannity or Rachel Maddow, just give you the headlines for five, 10 minutes. Okay, here we go to the news desk. Here's Rich. He's going to give us the headlines. Then you go back and go, okay, now we're telling you our opinion. And we're going to bring on people who have the same opinions as we do. And we're going to all share in our opinion until the top of the next hour and we'll give you some news again. That kind of thing would go a long way toward making sure readers and listeners and viewers understand exactly what it is they're consuming because they don't like that. Right. And the headlines would have to be held to being headlines because there's a lot of inflammatory writing. And I love social media. It's a way to connect with those people from my entire life. And somebody will post an article and I'll read the article and the article does not support the headline at all. In fact, and I'll feed it back to them, say, did you see this part in the article? And a lot of times I never even read it. That just seems to me that we're eliminating critical thinking. Like there's this hair trigger for non-orthodoxy, whether it's the right or the left. And that audiences are just conditioned to reject facts that don't fit their narrative. Joe, in your arc of your career, has there been a time when you know news audiences struggle just to hold two thoughts in their head? Like, we had a noble idea to go into Vietnam, but boy, were we wrong about that. Or more recently, yeah, Donald Trump was a really bad guy to have as president, and the FBI really misbehaved too. Right. I mean, in your career, is this something new or something that... It's very new, Rich. And it's it's what we call whataboutism, okay. which is, okay, that's wrong, but what about that? What about that? As if it negates... It's like, as I often say to people who do that to me, I go, well, didn't your mom ever say two wrongs don't make a right? That's that inability to hold two thoughts. You can say to yourself, right, thought A, but thought B, you can say to yourself, yes, it's awful what's happening in Portland and Seattle, but it was awful what happened at the Capitol as well. You don't have to choose sides about those things. It's okay to hold those two thoughts in your head. People had to look at arson right, and wait till the news told them whether they liked the arson or not. I cite this case often because it annoys me, but the damage to the Ronald McDonald House in Chicago, Yeah, I have yet to find one person 
on the left that said, you know what, that's just a hideous, despicable act. Can't bring themselves to say that, okay? A, a place that, because it doesn't fit the narrative. And, and then I think about this memory erase nature of reporting. Yep. Doesn't it seem odd that the Kavanaugh hearings were not only not an issue in the presidential election, but how about the Georgia Senate runoff? Yep. You know, wouldn't you would think that the seating of judges that goes through the Senate would be a big deal? Threats are hyped. There's no follow-up. And, you know, you mentioned the riots in Portland. Did you see the report last night that the mayor pepper sprayed a guy? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, this is the same mayor that told his police department not to pepper spray people. No, it's crazy. Yeah, it's I'm, kind of, I'm kind of off in the weeds there. but No, no, but, listen, it's, again, to bring it back to news, part of the problem has been, and other people have talked about this, this is nothing new, is the demands of the 24-hour news cycle. Mm -hmm. I mean, what you're talking about is the lack of perspective that you see in news and that you read in the news. And that's and that's a direct result of our ADD society brought on by social media and the 24 hour news cycle. So obviously, if you're on a 24 hour cable network, you've got to fill it. It used to be when I started out in broadcasting, you had to fill 22 minutes on the evening newscast and you had until seven o'clock at night to fill it. So you had time to, to give things perspective. Something that happened in the morning, you at least had a few hours. You know, if you were in the newspaper business, gosh, you had till the next morning. You, you had a luxury of time. You don't have a moment anymore. I feel so bad for people who are on-air reporters right now and print reporters as well, especially in a place like Washington. Their phone is always ringing. Their editor's always on the phone. You got to tweet that out. You got to tweet that out. Yes. We're going to go to you live in two minutes. Again, they have no time to sit and think about what the story means in any greater context because they're always throwing it out there. We and the reader is uh, given no time to digest it and think about what it means in their lives. We had a award-winning journalist who is a trusted anchor in Detroit for many years, Mort Krim. Sure. And sure. Mort, oh you know Mort. Okay, Mort made that point. He said when he was reporting the news, there would be section editors. Somebody would come in with yes. a story and they'd say, okay, did you get this right? Did you ask this question? Did you follow up with this person? And then it would kind of move up the chain until the editor said, okay, are we confident we have it right? And then he contrasted that with what you just described. It's He says, these we're just seeing reporting being done. We're not seeing any kind of editing no, being done. It's raw. It's raw reporting. Right. Can it be news if it's just raw reporting? I mean, you and I could go to an event and we each hold up our cell phones and we're taking a picture and you're from your angle and I'm from my angle. But I, on my channel, I'm going to say the, the villains are over here and you're going to say the villains are over there. Right. Can that actually still be news if we know we're going to get that from a certain right. channel? Not only is it not news, it's opinion. I mean, listen, I find it very difficult to watch any of the cable news channels mm -hmm. because I feel, to your point, I know what they're going to say before they even open up their mouths. Amen. Right? Because they're not there to say to me, here's what happened today. They're going to say, here's what I think it really means. And I know what you mean. I know what you think. Yes, I know. And yes. I know what you want me to think. It's not really worth my time to spend any time with with you. And I don't do it anymore. And I have to tell you, when I started this job that I'm doing right now, I some ways I regretted. I said, now I have to watch it. No, I <laughs> to, totally, totally. To, be, to be knowledgeable. And I, I actually kind of like the Hannity and Combs format, although mm -hmm. my father was like Sean Hannity, not that he liked his opinion, but he just liked his pugnaciousness. Um, yeah. And, and I said, yeah, I said, Alan Combs is the Washington generals of that too. Uh, you know, <laughs> he, he, exactly. he was, he was brought on the court to get hammered by <laughs> Hannity. So I, and I don't watch Hannity. I don't watch Rachel Maddow, but if there was a program that they were on together, right. 
I, I, that'd be first thing on my on my DVR. Joe, here's a big question. Would a responsible parent teach their children to trust or to not trust the news? Well, that's wow. That's a great one. Um, a responsible parent would teach would teach them media literacy, which is don't trust, but verify. Use your brain. Go in there with a skeptical point of view about everything you see and you read and try to find out what the real fact is behind it. But don't accept anything at face value. It's a tough thing. Now, the studies that I was telling you about that shows that, um, that people confuse opinion with news all the time also shows that younger people do a better job of disentangling those two. And I think because younger people have grown up in this media maelstrom that we find ourselves in, you know, this constant feeding of factoids and that blending of news and information and opinion and all of that, they have a better job. They're not as intimidated by it and have better radar for BS in terms of the media coming at them than older people do who were raised on, gee, there's Walter Cronkite, there's John Chancellor, there's Peter Jennings, I'm done, this is great. I find that hopeful that there is sort of a innate media literacy, an innate sense of the language of what works and doesn't, an innate sense of hyperbole and dismissing it because they've grown up with so much of it around. It's helpful. But parents have the tough job of really instructing, if they're serious, as you said, about, about their kids consuming news properly, not just ideologically, but teaching them how to be a news consumer in the way you consume anything. How do you read the labeling, find out what's really inside the box before you buy it. Never considered that, but let me just echo back why that resonates with me is that if a person, say my age, was raised in an era of, hey, trust the news, they're doing a credible job, it's being edited. My first reaction when I see something is going to be to believe it. Right. And that may translate to the 30s and 40s something a little bit, but also they're going to have been exposed to a lot of different news sources. They probably have never subscribed to a daily newspaper, uh, a print, a daily print newspaper right. and such. And that maybe the 15 year old is now getting their own RSS feeds and everything else and, and learning where to sort things out. So maybe we can pull back from the brink. And, and you've got some really good ideas on where to go from here. And I think that in your recent column on the Hill, you do talk about this. And you, you did make mention about labeling things as opinion. And, and you right. made the analogy with supermarket shoppers, which I want you to elaborate on. But also, let me see if I can articulate this. If I put out a post that says the president should be impeached because he breached his constitutional oath and also spare me the hand wringing and the pearl clutching if you didn't denounce rioting and property destruction right. over the summer. Half of my friends will beat in on the impeachment <laughs> and half will beat on, on the other ones and they'll never see the other side. So if that responsible parent is going to teach, and I love the term media literacy, I mean, I hope you write a lot about this and how to get there, but yet they're in a household that says, hey, wait a minute, don't listen to Fox, listen to MSNBC or the reverse, don't listen to MSNBC, listen to Fox. Right. How do we build that knowledgeable consumer and do the labeling and such. And, and I'd love to, to, to just dive in a little bit about some of the, I think, really strong ideas that you've published. Well, there are a few things can happen. One we talked about, which is have a straight newscast at the top of every hour. That's five or 10 minutes long. You know, when your kid watches that and, and it's like, okay, Johnny, that's what news is. Now we're going to mm -hmm. listen to our favorite guy tell us what we think. But that was the news. And based on that accepted bunch of facts, we're going to hear some opinion. That's one way. The other way is for these news channels to treat their opinion hosts like they treat their news side. 
And by that, I mean, opinion hosts are not really fact-checked, right? So it's not that the old Daniel Patrick Moynihan thing of everyone is entitled to their opinion, but not to their own set of facts. So if you're going to do an opinion show, Rich, based on some things that, that you've read about that are factually true, and now you have your opinion about those various truths, that's fine. But to make things up whole cloth, or to just propose things out of thin air and, and say, gee, I wonder if that's true, is a disservice. And I think the news channels would do would service their viewers better by doing some fact-checking and at least trying to get rid of some of the hyperbole that goes along with, with some of these opinion hosts on both sides. And, and would that fact-checking extend to the opinions that are kind of embedded in the news? And one of the things that I've picked up on in recent years is, yeah, we covered that story Uh, But, you know, you left out a couple of pertinent facts that would change it. So you you didn't put anything in there that was made up of whole cloth that just wasn't truthful. You just didn't put the whole string in there. But look, that's where good opinion hosts have real value, right? Which is they could say, look, I don't want to talk about X or Y. I want to talk about Z because that doesn't get enough attention. Now, Z happens to be true. I'm not making it up. Mm-hmm. It's not hyperbole to say that Z is very important, but Z, I feel, has been under undervalued, and I want to talk about Z. That's fun, and that's not where I think our problem lies in this country. I think the problem is making stuff up or proposing things that just are out of whole cloth. So yeah. I, there's a way. Again, there's a way to do this stuff responsibly. It's just that that more and more responsibility goes out the window. And, and, you know, I think some of the brazen things that have been said over the last four years, and I'm blaming our former President Trump, and I'm mm-hmm. blaming several of the Democratic lawmakers that sunk to that same level, mm-hmm. where, and I watched them do certain things, and, I, and I'm thinking, do they really believe that? Are they that detached from reality? Or do they think we're that dumb that we're going to buy it? And the really curious part is that the interviewers never called them on it, right? right? Never said, you know, look, I think you're overstating the case or that's utter nonsense. This didn't do it. Is that their fear of not getting guests for their programs or what's driving that lack of stepping up as a journalist? Look, it depends on what programs you're talking about. If you're talking about opinion programs, people are usually booked on those programs because the host agrees with them and vice mm-hmm. versa. So the host is not going to challenge them. They're, they're there to, to agree with everybody else who's there. A newscast is different, right? You're right. A newscast, th- that anchor's job, that journalist's job is not to let you just talk and talk and talk, but to say, well, wait a minute. It still does happen, but too often, again, this goes to the overall trend, even on straight news shows, they're booking people who agree with the, the common wisdom on a, to- on a, on a topic. Right. Yeah, just, just to interject, I mean, I was watching, again, the CNN before you and I came on today, and they said, we're going to go to a presidential historian at Rice University. Okay. And I was like, oh, good, right? And what did he do? As soon as they switched on the camera, there came the talking points about why are there 45 Republican senators that think this hearing's unconstitutional? It was just a, a regurgitation of everything that Jake Tapper and Wolf Blitzer had said. I was hoping that the presidential scholar would come in and say, well, look, we had this situation in 74, and we had the situation in the 1800s. So, you know, Joe, on the pandemic, as you continue to exercise your craft, any change in your thinking or in theories regarding reporting since the pandemic's begun? Anything that's leaped out? Listen, the only that leaps out to me is it may not leap out to you. It's sort of clear to me at this stage in the pandemic that there is an East Coast media bias, only because I think you and I remember when the pandemic first hit almost a year ago and struck New York terribly. That's all we heard about, as we should have. I mean, you had all those all those uh, those pictures of 
overflowing hospitals, hospital beds, ventilators. The situation is nearly as bad right now, in some ways worse in California, certainly down where I am in Southern California. But it doesn't make the news, the national news, in the same way, because we're out here in LA. It's easy to cover a New York story when you're all based in New York, or a DC story when you're all based in DC. But it's less difficult to bring home to people the severity of the situation in a city that's 3,000 miles away from your home base. So to me, it's kind of brought out that flaw in our national news media. The local news media does a good job of covering it, but national news is more challenged. And I concur. And at the beginning of the pandemic, you're reminding me now that the crux of the story that was, I think, couldn't be anything other than intentional to stay away, that most of the deaths still occurred in five states and they occurred in nursing homes. And it was for policy decisions. So New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, and Michigan, that they all made terrible policy responses and ended up, frankly, killing a lot of people. And I just wonder if the governors were of a different party, would we have heard of that? And I guess, thankfully, uh, California, Southern California has lifted some restrictions just yesterday, I believe. Yeah. Look, it's it's very difficult. I mean, on a personal note, uh, our neighbor right across the street passed away two nights ago. An older man, uh, his wife is now alone dealing with cancer and she has COVID and hopefully she'll make it. But he was in a hospital in a hallway on a ventilator right here in our neighborhood. Mm. Um, and he passed away within 48 hours of being admitted to the hospital. So it's a very real thing. And it's, oh, uh, no it's doubt about it. We, we've covered COVID a lot. And my yeah, no, I know you have. You've done a great health job. data, health data and going to the sources and what works and where we are in the vaccines. And actually, my number came up. So after we record here, I'm going to go get my first dose. Excellent. Uh, I think that's our best way to, to punch a hole in this. Yes. Now, Joe, when you think about where we're at today, are we thinking about policies that could be enacted from a government approach? Or are we thinking about change coming from inside the industry or consumer demand for better reporting. How do we exit this thing and get back to, you said, we can all argue opinions, but at least let's start with the same set of facts. Listen, I I think there are ways that inside the industry, they can make things better without hurting the golden goose, which is is the opinion stuff. By doing some of the things you and I talked about, having a, a news segment at the top of each program, labeling opinion very clearly, giving it the same opinions, the same fact checking as you do as straight news. Uh, I think your point about headlines is well taken because often a viewer just sees the headline as they're as they're skimming through their channels, making the bringing down the volume of the headlines, not having them scream so much and be so hyperbolic. Those things could all help. In terms of the government, it is hard to get the government involved in so many things, so many times. What it may take is something that the uh, European Union is considering right now, which is treating, and this is more social media, which is treating the big social media companies. Facebook, Twitter, Google, like publishers, mm-hmm. right? Which is you're responsible for the content on your platform. Just the way, if, if, Rich, if you wrote a book and Simon and Schuster published it, they'd be as responsible as you are if you got something wrong because they're the ones distributing what you've written. So if you treat the social media platforms in the same way as publishers, not just as bulletin boards, then that may help them control a little bit knowing they have to take responsibility for what's on and make sure that all voices are heard equally if they've got to take responsibility for what's there, that it's not just a free-for-all. Right. They have to be accountable that they are scanning not just for opinion, which I think is a right. a, a popular notion today that that's what they're doing. I only had one bad experience in that. I, I think the parallels with the book 1984 that we're seeing today are stark. 
And I posted something about Emmanuel Goldstein, the two minutes hate. Yes, the two minutes hate. And and so they said, what, you know, what's Trump going to do after this? And I'm thinking, well, you know, he could become the Emmanuel Goldstein. So I I found a link on a study guide called SparkNotes that basically just talked about the book and Facebook blocked it. They said, I, I talk about COVID on my on my podcast. So you have to be careful on my, uh, actually on my Facebook common bridge page, which is fine. I mean, it, I, I don't mind that, but you know, we get credible sources and so forth. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's, that's just, that was probably just their algorithm picking up some keywords from your manual yes. and, and, and just flagging it without, it's an algorithm. It's, not, it's AI. It's not a real human being at right. least you know, 99 times out of a hundred. So, Joe, this has been incredibly interesting, and I am really looking forward to your future writing and and potentially have you come back on the Common Bridge because I think this is so important that we get this right. Yeah, um, we'd love to do it. And, and con- again, congratulations. I think what you're doing, really trying to just have a decent conversation uh, that brings in all kinds of points of view is really, really important. And I'm and I'm thrilled uh, that that you're that you're seeing success because that's some of the hopeful things that we that we need that people can do that kind of honest conversation and and other people will find it recommend it and share it well i do believe there's a there's an opportunity there what didn't we cover today that maybe we should be discussing now listen i think in terms of the media we we have covered a lot of it and some of your your listeners and viewers may feel like gee but there weren't any great answers that came out of it and I apologize. There isn't any one answer. There is no magic bullet to what you and I have been talking about. Are there it's any a, actions that you could recommend people take today? Listen, uh, you can change the channel if you don't mm. like what you're seeing. And you can write to a cable operator and go, please, please don't put that on. Here are some of the crazy things they're saying that I know are not true. Yeah, please don't do that. They, you know, that would help. But most of all, I think it goes to what you and I were talking about in terms of viewers now and viewers to come, which is be media literate. Don't accept what you see at face value, whether it's on Facebook or on your TV screen. Give it a little more thought than that. Try to go to outlets that you may disagree with and see what they say, and then contrast and compare. Look, it's tough. It's taking up a lot of time. No one has time in their lives anymore. I get it. But if you really care, you need to invest some time as a viewer, as a news consumer, to make sure you're getting everything you need. I agree with that 100%. And I'd also encourage anybody, my listeners and friends, my family, acquaintances, really try to understand the other person. Instead of rejecting out of hand because you were told that this doctrine is evil or evil in its origins, ask them, how did they arrive at their conclusions? And really listen to them and look for some common ground. What can we do better together? And again, like I like that two thoughts in your head. Yeah, we can say that this is wrong, but that's also wrong. And you, you don't have to give up that the first thing is wrong. Right. But Joe, any closing thoughts at all? This has been a really fascinating discussion. And I, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you being here. Sam, listen, my only thought is, again, congrats to you on what you're doing. I hope you can inspire and encourage other people to try the same thing. And if things like this can crack through the noise, which is rare, it's very hopeful. Well, thank you. We're talking today on The Common Bridge with Joe Ferrillo. He is a renowned journalist, columnist, Please read his material. I think you'll like it. He's got a wealth of experience and he speaks very clearly. This is Rich Helpy. I'm signing off today on The Common Bridge. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast. Recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. 
For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.